0: Wait for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is HudsonRiverRadio.com, your local Rockland County station. I'm Linda Zimmerman. I'm Michael Wharton. And this is Murder in the Hudson Valley on HudsonRiverRadio.com. Welcome everyone. We have a very exciting show tonight and a very, very special guest who really isn't a guest. Uh, Brian, how are you tonight? All
2: right, I'm hanging in there. I I don't think he counts as a guest either. Not at this point. He's expected to vacuum and do dishes like the rest of us. (laughs) (laughs) That's right.
0: That's right. We are just thrilled for the triumphant return of Michael Warden. Yay. Thank you,
1: everybody. Thank you. No applause necessary.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But appreciated. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, uh, He has just come out with an amazing book, but let's get some announcements out first. Uh, Sure. Brian, we... Hudson River Radio has a store now we, we
2: are we have an Etsy store up now with a little bit of uh, merch if you're interested um, nice travel mugs nice bottle opener stainless steel laser engraved customized so if you go on our Etsy store you pick any of uh, the shows we do here at Hudson River Radio you pick the logo you want you pick your personalization it will be custom printed and uh, free shipping so very if nice you go to etsy.com and just look up Hudson River Radio you see everything pop up. And uh, check that out. We are also participating in the Mount Kisco Farmers Market in Westchester County. That's every Sunday throughout the summer from 10 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. So we'll be there most Sundays, not every Sunday, but we'll be doing music. There's going to be also live bands and stuff performing and local farms, farmers, a lot of really good stuff. Because, you know, bring extra cash because you're going to overspend. And uh, and the UFO, the Pine Bush UFO Fair, which is your domain. I'm going to leave that to you to talk about. But we'll be yeah, there for that. Um
0: June, let me get that right. June fourth coming up Saturday. Um if you're listening before the <laughs> the fair, uh come on by. Um and I think that is I think that is about it. So, anything else we I, have to announce?
2: I think that's it for now. That's enough. Okay. So that's enough. That's more than enough. So, and, you yeah. know,
0: so order those murder in the Hudson Valley mugs. Of course, that's our preference. With
2: your name right. on it. And you can even add on the bottom, not, you know, not guilty if you want. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or hang him. Or either, You can put your opinion, you can put your name, anything you want. <laughs> so, Mike, I have personally seen the incredible effort you have put into this new book. Um, I've said all along, this is doctoral dissertation level research you have done on it. And I will let you tell us what you've been up to for many years and how it has culminated finally
1: into a book. Well, thank you for the, the intro. I mean, it is, well, first of all, the name of the book is lynched by a mob, the 1892 lynching of Robert Lewis in Port Jervis, New York. So it's a true crime. It is, just as the title says, it's uh, a tragic and and terrible event here in Port Jervis history. The night of June 2nd, 1892, um, an angry mob dragged Robert Lewis, who was a local African American man. They seized him from police custody, had been accused of sexually assaulting a white woman. And as was very common in the South at that time, He was taken from police custody. He was dragged almost a half mile through the streets of Port Jervis. He was beaten. He was kicked. He was punched, um, subjected to just a brutal level of violence before finally they, they hanged him not once, but twice from a maple tree on main street within the, within the shadow of one of the oldest churches in the community. Um, So, you know, it's always been one of those incidents in Port Jervis history. It's actually, one of only two documented lynchings in New York State outside of the eighteen sixty three draft riots where there were lynchings in New York City. The other lynching was in Newburgh in eighteen sixty three um in the months preceding the draft riots. so this is one of the very few lynchings in New York that occurred outside that period
0: um, and pretty late, you know there were yes. a lot um as you said around the Civil War and immediately <laughs> following but uh 1892 you would have hoped orange county was a little more civilized than that but yes mob violence turns people into animals
1: yes and and that's exactly one of the things i learned from this research is it's very easy for the the so-called good people of the world to suddenly become monsters and then we've seen that recently
2: yeah absolutely just yeah all Mm -hmm. it takes is is you know someone lights the fuse and yep. that's it. And and it's amazing to see the transformation, a large group. Of and people. then
1: to go back to as, as if life really nothing ever happened, mm-hmm. which so when I took upon this endeavor, this is a really a, a lifelong interest. This story goes back many years. My my grandmother, who passed last year, her, her aunt, uh, Mary Jane Clark was her name. Everybody called her Jenny. Her aunt had tended to the rape victim, Lena McMahon, in the wow. aftermath of the sexual assault, helped clean her up. So my grandmother had heard this story from her aunt firsthand at some point. So I remember in 1985, when a tree was cut down, everybody thought this was the lynching tree. And it kind of brought interest back in the papers, I actually interviewed uh, Mary Jane Clark's granddaughter at the time. But I remember my grandmother, she still had the articles. And that's what really prompted me to write this about, I don't know, how many years ago Linda, now a hundred. I funny. don't know. <laughs> but, um <laughs> You know, what really prompted it was, and, and over the years, I've, I've looked into it. I've gathered a little bit of information and always thought I'd like to write it. But it's such a convoluted story, and I'll talk about that. But, you know, a few, a couple, well, more than a few years back now, my grandmother had been looking for some genealogy information on her, her Clark side of the family. And she had the article saved from 1985. Still, you know, the clippings, because it had her family. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you know, oh, you ought to, Michael, she called me Michael John whenever it was serious. Michael John. Oh, Either I was in trouble or <laughs> I better listen. That's how I knew. The minute the middle name came out. So Michael John, you need to, you need to write a book about this. <laughs> okay, oh, <grandma. laughs> so even,
0: even back then?
1: Yes. So this is, you know, back in the nine, this is only about five years ago now, four years ago. And I said, you know what? You're right, Grandma. I'll You're right. Oh, This is my next book. And then I really jumped in full feet first. I said, okay, this is my next project. My wife had been aggravating me. "How come you're not writing another book? You have all this research, you have all this you know I so said, "I'm going to do the lynching." And you know, for such a big event, such a prominent event in history, it was largely forgotten. There wasn't a lot really well known about it. It creeped up occasionally. You know, in 1992, a newspaper reporter wrote about it on the hundredth anniversary, but really went off of just what was known from previous newspaper articles. Which often weren't accurate. That was, a, you know, one of the problems as we know, Linda. With the older things get, one person prints something erroneously. The next person doesn't fact check it, repeats it, and the next thing you know, people are reciting misinformation but believing it's factual because, well, this person wrote about it 20 years ago and said this is what happened. Yeah,
0: we we've seen even with current newspaper articles, somebody you know wants to interview us we're lucky if our names are spelled right and they get I mean, so in current events, there can be so many errors and um, I'm sorry, but it is not a law of the universe that if you repeat an inaccuracy 100 times on the internet, it becomes a truth. Um, doesn't happen. So I know I I've seen the way you're, you work on this. Um, you just have doggedly pursued, you know, like a bloodhound with these facts that I need, not only do you need to be accurate, you want to find the references, the earliest references. And then, um, I, I, I how many times did you call me up? I found such and such, but I have to go to Massachusetts to find this, or I have to go here, or... Hey, do you want to go through thirty boxes of dusty old records? And you know, which is great. I love it. I oh, love I know. <laughs> I had to twist your arm many times. <laughs> yeah, no twisting necessary. But you—you you did not just take these stories as for face value, and and you tried to track down all the the capillaries, the the sub stories behind it because you know, like you were saying, Brian, ordinary people, something lights the fuse and suddenly it's madness. And this was madness over the scale of an entire town. Yeah.
2: And and then after it's, well, what's the big deal? It's over. It's gone. So try to sweep it away. Forget about it. What's, what's, you know, it happened in the past. Let's move on. I don't think so. And,
1: And really, you know, Linda knows how complex this story is. You know, it's you have this prime event, which is the lynching. It's the crime that really, it's an unsolved homicide, technically. No one's ever held accountable. Um, and you have the sexual assault earlier in the day, which sort of precipitates everything. But there's so much more than that. You know, a lot of people, when they look at true crime, focus on, okay, this is what happened. This is what happened at the lynching and the aftermath. But we tend to forget that there's actually real people involved. So, for example, the man who was lynched Robert Lewis, that's not even his real name. He's been remembered by the wrong name for over 130 years now. It'll be 130 years this June 2nd. So I was able to determine what his real name was, although he used a different name more commonly because of who his family is. And I don't want to give away all my secrets, (laughs) but I tracked down, I actually tracked down something of, of this man who was lynched that was his in life and was able to reproduce something of his in life that was from him and i reproduced it in the book, which I know has never been done before. No one's ever seen it. No one probably would even think to look for a source like this. <laughs> um, which my wife always says, how do you even, where's your mind come up with these things? And I'm like, I don't know. I just, when I get focused on something, I, my brain, t- I got those capillaries coming out of my head
0: <laughs>
1: and I'm thinking where else could things be? But um, the victim of the sexual assault, for example, um, is a forgotten victim in all this. Lena McMahon and I wanted to know not just about Robert Lewis and I'll refer to him as that just to keep things simple but what happened to him what was his life like before you know he lived more his life was more than just that night of June 2nd you know who was he what was his life Um, what happened to him on that day and where is he buried that was a big big question mark too Um, and Lena McMahon this this victim who was she and what happened to her after 1892 Um, because she basically falls off the face of the earth and what everybody kind of knows about lena mcmahon is and this this is pretty well known so i'm not giving away the the secrets but she turns up two years later in 1894 in the cosmopolitan hotel in new york city on chambers street and broadway with a rotting infant corpse in her hotel room so yeah mm. i see linda's face yeah
0: what? <laughs> watching I, the face <laughs> i think this is a good time to take our first break and Let that sink we, in folks <laughs> yes when we get back you can start on the timeline of what happened on this amazing case so we will be right back hudsonriverradio.com Hi, this is Mercedes Kent.
1: And Big Jim Wheeler, and we're on The Silver Screen. And we're going to be talking about show business, movies, and TV. Just about anything you want to hear. The Silver Screen.
0: Right here on HudsonRiverRadio.com. Entertainment ensues.
2: Subscribe to The Silver Screen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Gail Newcomb from Paranormally Yours here. Seen any weird-looking creatures lately? I mean, besides your co-workers, family, and friends. The Hudson Valley actually is said to have its own water monster, and even possibly Sasquatch. Or is it something else? Join me, Gail Newcomb, for Paranormally Yours. We'll be exploring the unexplained and the mysterious from all around the Hudson Valley. Join me for Paranormally Yours on HudsonRiverRadio.com.
2: Subscribe to Paranormally Yours on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: HudsonRiverRadio.com.
0: And we are back. Mike, you left us in quite a gruesome cliffhanger. So, uh, Brian, <laughs> so, did you have some questions before we? I
2: have a over? lot of questions, but let's okay. let's start with that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, just just goes to the level of work I wanted to do. So, Lena McMahon, for example, was a big enigma because it was pretty—I don't, I don't want to say well-known—because anybody that knew the case kind of knew it, but outside of that, but you know, she kind of disappears from Port Jervis pops up in a sensational way in 1894 with a, when she's in a hotel room in New York city with a dead infant corpse decomposing in the August heat. You know, you can imagine 1894, there's no air conditioning. It's the end of July. It's probably very hot and a chambermaid is suspicious because they probably smelled something. Um, she didn't kill her baby. It was born deceased. She um, by all accounts, Lena McMahon was this beautiful and highly intelligent woman. she, read books on how to deliver babies so she could deliver her own child. Um, And then from there she disappears. You know, she kind of faded into the woodwork and I wanted to tell her story. And that's one of the ones Linda talks about going to Massachusetts and um, she dogged me for like three years. Um, And I did find out what happened to her. She was single beforehand. She was trying to keep it secret. Was that the, yeah, she was single. Um, And she, she had clearly, you know the reports at the time talked about her losing her mind essentially and when i was able to finally fill her life pieces in um that tragically did happen and, and the way she died and when she died is very tragic and that's all i'm going to say anybody wants to know that's gonna to have to buy the book <laughs> but that's that 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 determination i didn't give up and i i could have i could have wrote the story without it but the real heart and soul of the story is this June 2nd of 1892. And it's really just this horrible convergence of events. Uh, Lena McMahon, this young, beautiful girl, she's in her early 20s, she runs a confectionery on Kingston Avenue in Port Jervis. Excuse me, she's a graduate of the local high school, they called it the Academy. But back then, very few people graduated from high school. She was one of, you know, a handful at that of 1889, who graduated. Um, very likable her father is a glass blower from ireland her mother's irish so she's a adopted daughter she's not their biological child but by all accounts she's raised like that well at the end of 1891 lena gets involved with a man named pj foley he goes by initials pj now what's his first name was it philip was it peter was it patrick i don't know he goes by Peter. He goes by Philip. It depends on which source. Port Jervis. Which news.
0: <laughs> Port Jervis. <laughs> Port Jervis. There you go.
1: Um, and his, his real name might not have even been P. There's, I, he is the one frustration that I can't give you 100% answers on. Um, and he's from Massachusetts. Try researching the last name Foley in Massachusetts in the 1890s. Mm-hmm. Forget it. The, it was just dead end after dead end. But he's an insurance salesman. He's a little bit older very charming, um, described as, you know, a smooth talker, which there's no doubt he was from the things I read about him and what he has written. And she just takes on a very unhealthy infatuation. We would call it today, the, the buzzword would be a toxic relationship. And that's what they had. He was not a very good insurance salesman. He was probably more of a scam artist than an insurance salesman. He's tried to defraud a local hotel keeper. So he got sent to the county jail for a few months. At which point Lena's parents said, no way, no how. Ain't good enough for our daughter. You two need to stay away from each other. Well, Lena wasn't going to be told no. They kept seeing each other secretly. He started to extort her for money because he clearly had no source of income and would basically threaten to ruin her reputation. So there was definitely much more than a friendly relationship going on which in 1892 probably happened more than people admitted, but had it been made public would have ruined her reputation. She no longer would have been a desirable catch for the other good young men of Port Jervis, I guess. So they continue this very secret relationship. Um, and in the days leading up to June 2nd, Lena has a falling out with her mother over guess who? PJ. Because once again, she's been caught sneaking out, seeing, seeing him on the side. So she goes to New York City for a couple of days. A lot of questions about what she did there because she claims to have no memory of what she did in New York City or how she got back to Port Jervis. But we know from the other accounts that she basically comes back and spends the night with P.J. Foley. So this is the day before the lynching. They spend the night together. They walk around. And in the morning, they end up at a place in Port Jervis, which is called the Fairgrounds. And it was just an area located along the Never Sink River. Very idyllic, you know, people would go down there and sit, read. And she's going to go to to Boston. She's leaving Port Jervis. And PJ, being the nice guy that he is, decides to help her. He's going to help her get her trunk of property so she can get on the train. So he leaves her at the fairground and says, I'm going to go get us some sandwiches. And it's about a probably a good mile or so from where the fairgrounds were to where he goes or claims to go, which is down by the railroad depot. So it's, you know, a little before noon, it's a beautiful June 2nd, gorgeous June day here in New York. And as she's sitting there, this man, Robert Lewis, he's identified, there's people that witness this, approaches her, seizes her and brutally rapes her in broad daylight in front of several witnesses, one of whom names him by name, who knew him. There are several women, including my great grand aunt, Jenny, who worked at a factory nearby, they were eating lunch on the banks of the river when they heard the screams and you know, they of course go running. And what has been a big question mark for all these, well, 130 years now is they saw PJ Foley hiding in the bushes, watching the assault. So I see Linda shaking her
0: head. Oh my God. Yeah. This is the real villain in this story. Yes.
1: So, and of course that doesn't come out till after the fact. So on the day of June 2nd, all they have is Lena McMahon being left senseless after being assaulted and Robert Lewis sort of leaving, leaving her there and walking off along the fields towards the old Delaware and Hudson canal, which had run through Port Jervis. So Lena's mother comes the factory girls. They tend to her PJ Foley, of course shows up and Lena says, what happens? I've been outraged. And he tells, which is very odd to me. He tells everybody, well, listen, don't tell anybody about this. I'll go look for him. There's no need to tell anybody. That's what he keeps telling the factory girls. Like, don't tell anybody. Very suspicious behavior, right? You're more concerned about that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, he sees her mother coming and has to, he has to run away because he knows the mother doesn't want to near him. And I'm pretty sure as an older Irish woman, she was probably going to beat him. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think she was very afraid of him. Mm-hmm. So he kind of disappears. And Lena goes home. There's a lot of confusion about her health status. People are reporting she's dying. She's near death. She's going to die. She might not make the night. So the community is already up in arms. There's no real facts going out. They know she's been assaulted. They know who did it because his identity is known. It's Robert Lewis. But no one knows the severity of her injuries. So, you know, back then, the police, they were, um, they didn't serve the function like they would today. You know, the, some police were out kind of looking around the area. But back then, most of the police were assigned a foot footbeat in Port Jervis. So you had a post of several streets. You had a post. The other guy had different streets or a different section of town. Mm-hmm. There was no, like, investigation going on. So the police didn't go up, take statements. They didn't do interviews. They didn't send out, you know, police officers to search. It was left to citizens to put together sort of like a posse. Mm-hmm. And the man who really sort of takes the lead on this is a guy named Saul Carley who's a flagman for the Erie River? And he happens to be a neighbor and friend of the McMahons. So he has a little bit of a personal interest here. So he gets a couple of people together and they're like, listen, I've heard he, you know, we know he went up the canal. Let's, you want to go get him?" So they kind of get this little party together and they, they start trailing him along the canal and they catch up with some people and say, oh yeah, you know, he, he got on a canal boat here. And back then canal boats were, were pulled by mules and probably moved about three miles an hour. If you were lucky, you know, you could probably run faster or walk faster. Mm-hmm. So they decide they're going to split up. Two of them are going to take the canal towpath, and the other ones are going to continue up the road by carriage um, to a little hamlet called Huguenot, New York. Still there today. And they catch up with the canal boat and there they see him. He was familiar to them. They get on the boat. And they engage in a little bit of conversation with him. And as they get to Huguenot, they do this big, you know, dramatic, well, you're coming with us. And they grab him. And there's a scuffle on this canal boat. And they manage to get him sort of tied up. And they drag him off the canal boat at Huguenot. So they tie his hands behind his back. They tie his feet together. And they get him on this wagon. And already at Huguenot, there's a crowd that wants to try to lynch him. So there's a warning sign here. You know, there's a little bit of a note here. Maybe we should be careful about going back to Port Jervis, but there's no telephones really at that time. They're, they're scarce. Telegraph would have been the only other way to communicate. And you had to have a telegraph station, someone to send the telegraph out. So they go back to Port Jervis to wagon ride. It probably took a good 40 minutes to go from Huguenot to Port Jervis at that time. And on the way, they basically, they use some language, which I won't repeat, but they tell him how disappointed they are in him. And he admits he did it, but he says, I did it, but PJ Foley told me to, he said she would be game for it. Now, why would he do that? I don't know. Um, I tend to think and Brian as a, as a police officer, you might also, you know, I don't think they made that confession up because if they were going to make up a confession, they would have just left it at, yeah, he admitted he did it. Mm -hmm. The PJ Foley aspect, lends credibility to the fact that he did admit it now did robert lewis make up pj foley told him to do it you know that's that's a pretty interesting detail to make up
0: if you're admitting oh, and, and if i it. could i'm sorry to interrupt yeah. but if i could interject there were witnesses who saw pj foley in the bushes watching yeah if he did not if he did not set up or encourage lewis to do it why didn't he try to? St- you see, your girlfriend being assaulted and you you hide in the bushes and watch. He's an evil, evil snake in this story. Yeah, and yes. I I
1: believe a hundred percent. And there was there a up-
2: connection before between PJ and Robert that we know so of. Or?
1: of course, PJ claims no. I only know him in passing from you know seeing him at like the Delaware House or Hotel. But there was evidence that they had had some type of relationship as either acquaintances there was allegations that Lewis acted as a go-between like passing notes on occasion, like from Foley to Lena or vice versa. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely, there was a definite familiarity. There was rumors that Foley had offered other African-American men money to do it. That was, I was never able to actually substantiate any of that. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he implicated Foley at that moment to me lends, you know, he really had a lot to lose. He, he'd confessed the rape at that point. You're, you're going to be convicted, you know? Mm-hmm. So why would you lie about PJ Foley? If anything, I think, um, it just lends more credibility. You know, of course he's tied up, seated between two white males. It, today would be a very coercive environment. I don't think,
2: yeah. you know, as yeah.
1: police officers, we could not get in a confession in that way.
2: Miranda wasn't a thing back then either. Right,
1: but, you know, 1892, the things would have been so much different. But I, I am firmly convinced that P.J. Foley, as Linda said, was the evil, the puppet master behind all these horrible events. Um,
0: now, was Lena, He? she was going to Boston, was she leaving him?
1: Well, you know, that's where I think it's, interesting because she was getting away from her mother she claimed Mm -hmm. because she was having so many problems over Foley you know they of course you know she initially denies they were anything more than friends but yet as things came out you start to realize yes they really were more than friends I think she was just trying to get out of Port Jervis I don't think she was really trying to get away from him as much as her mother at that time okay yeah they definitely had much more than a a casual friendship there was definitely a a deeper and There was definitely a sexual relationship, I'm pretty confident at that point. And
0: and why he would do this, why he would put up Robert Lewis to do this, what, this is a sick mind.
1: Yeah, so, you know, there's some information where she really started to resist his his money efforts, the blackmailing. Okay. Um, He couldn't, they could never really be a couple because he couldn't support her. He had no means of employment, really. Um, she had stopped wanting to give him money and he had continued to threaten. He had blackmailing letters where basically, if you don't give me money, I'm going to tell the newspapers. are going to love to hear what I have to say. Um, He even makes a comment in one of his letters that when they hear about the things you've done, the African-American community will really love to talk about you. Which interesting, right? So what was he saying? What kind of things was he either implicating or was he telling Bob Lewis, for example, about lena without her even knowing it Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so you know again brian we know with domestic violence and domestic um type of real problems you know power and control is always the real problem Mm -hmm. it's not you know the violence isn't it's the power and control at the core of it Mm -hmm. so i really think that lena was the victim of domestic violence here and power and control he exerted a tremendous level of power and control yeah. over lena mcmahon she's a victim of domestic violence mm-hmm. and he manipulated her he controlled her and i think he manipulated robert lewis he was a smooth talker and he even tries to talk his way out of all the trouble he gets in after the lynching wow. with the blackmailing charges and
2: so you think a smooth just, talker would be a better insurance salesman
1: yeah I, <laughs> he was a better talker than a better criminal i think yeah <laughs> but and again, there's more cre- credence to the confession because Foley being at the scene doesn't really come out until days later. So it's not even like they knew that going there where you could say, okay, they kind of knew in advance. Maybe they didn't like Foley. They're friends of the family. So things fall on the line after the fact that sort of corroborate. So if we jump ahead, they get back to Port Jervis and they do have a little bit of, of fourth, foresight to stop just outside of where the jail is the jail at the time was located behind the firehouse and they send one of the guys ahead in the wagon to tell the police hey we got him. we're going to be at the jail in like 15 minutes be ready for us the problem was they didn't realize is a mob had already formed at the depot because there was word that an african-american male matching description was coming in on the train from otisville having been arrested and they were waiting to to seize him there And it was true. They had arrested somebody. It was the wrong man, but the president of the Monticello, Port Jervis Monticello railroad company realized it was the wrong guy and had the train stopped outside of Port Jervis. And they took him off into a hotel just outside of the the main village to keep him safe. probably
0: saved his life.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So when the train pulled up, the crowd was extremely disappointed. There was no one to lynch. Um, so the mob was there, the mob is already angry. They're milling about. So the police are alerted. The police quickly converge on where the jail location would have been. It was, the setup was horrible. You had a firehouse with a wooden door next to it where an alley had been turned into a hallway and it took you to the very back of the hose house where the jail had been attached to. So they had to get him out of the wagon. They'd had to get him through this rickety door down this hallway. To get him into the jail itself so the police kind of get the door open they're waiting there and the wagon comes around the corner with lewis on it and into a mob like delivers him right into the center of a mob and their wagon is immediately surrounded there's nothing they can do and the police of course rush in there they're, they're going to try to grab him but before they know it people are jumping up on the wagon um his And this was a a detail I only confirmed almost to the end before I published it because I found a source. They managed to get his feet untied. So they did untie the man's feet, but they never got his hands untied. So to me, that's a, a level of horror. You know, he's dragged out of the wagon. His hands are behind his back the whole time. And the minute he's taken out of the wagon, it's just violence. You know, you have people jumping on the wagon to get to him. You have people kicking him. They're punching him. And the whole time his hands, he has no opportunity to even put his hands up to even attempt to deflect the blow to me, which is just a, um, the, the terror that that must've instilled. If anybody can kind of think about it that way, like if someone goes to hit you and you can at least block yourself, you maybe have an opportunity. This man had no opportunity. Yeah. You're helpless at that point. So, do. and,
0: and, and how many people you th- were there in the mob
1: at this time? Several hundred, but it several grows. hundred. Yeah. It just keeps getting bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you have probably a handful of real ringleaders who are actively doing this. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's kind of like the cell. You have this nucleus, and then you get further out. You might have people who know something's going on, but really can't see. You know, a couple, ten or fifteen people in, you probably don't really know what's going on, but you're kind of looking over. Mm-hmm. Um, but those close enough are the ones kicking him, punching him. Um, as they get him out of the wagon, they start to pull him towards a lamppost and the lampposts, the streetlights, they were electric, had these projecting arms coming off of them. And they grab a rope and they throw it over the projecting arm. And they're going to hang him right there. And as they got the rope around his neck and they're trying to, to get it up there, the O.P. Howell, Obadiah Howell, um, someone we're very familiar with, um, manages to cut it. He has a, a pocket knife he, on He him. was the judge. Yep. He was, the, he was actually the village president at the time, too. Okay. So he's trying to reason with the crowd. He, he cuts this rope down. So the, he's temporarily saved. And then somebody, and again, there's a lot of different names get thrown around. The suggestion comes up, listen, maybe we should get him identified. Let's make sure he's the right guy before we kill him.
0: There's an idea. Let's make sure we're, if we're going right. to have mob violence, we're getting the right person.
1: Yeah, so they're going to take him to Lena McMahon's house on Kingston Avenue, which probably would have been a good, three quarters of a mile away because it was in between where the lynching occurred and where he was seized. So they're going to bring him there. O.P. Howell jumps in his carriage and says, I'm going to go ahead and tell them don't identify him. He's not the guy. Tell them he's not the guy. Even if he is the guy, tell him he's not the guy because we know it's going to happen. So the crowd starts moving up. And of course the police are doing everything they can to, to maintain control, but they're powerless to stop the mob. The mob's taken him to Lena's house. There's nothing they're going to do to stop it at all so all they can do is sort of try to keep up they try to keep the violence but there's nothing they can do to protect them because they're outnumbered one officer in particular simon yapel um kind of like a i don't say he's a hero but somebody i certainly admire um we went to his grave linda yeah remember that one and you found it again
0: i did find it <sighs> buried under sod but yes. i dug it out my scorecard is <laughs> very
1: low on that's another graves. story <laughs> that is but you know, Simon Yapel was a blacksmith. The police back then were appointed yearly. It was all political appointments. It's who you knew, what party was in power. He was a blacksmith, so he's not hes not someone who's weak. He's a pretty brave guy. He does everything he can to try to stop the rope being put over his neck. But he's only one man. Some of the other cops can't even get their way through the crowd anymore. It's so dense. It's like trying to, trying to get into that crowd. They can't do it. So Yapel really keeps up with them and does everything in his power. The mob throws the rope over his neck many times. Um, they throw it over the neck of another guy, uh, officer, William Bonner. Um, just just violence. So the they're
0: threatening t- to hang a police officer at this point who's oh, yeah. trying to stop it. So that's yes. how insane, what a frenzy these people were in.
1: Yeah. And this would have been uh, people that they knew. They would have known Simon Yaple. Mm-hmm. These weren't strangers. So they drag him up. And if you're familiar with Port Travis, they drag him up Sussex Street and as they get up to the top of Sussex Street, um, Yapel had been separated by a short distance from where Lewis was. And when he catches up, he finds him on the road. He looks dead. He's lying on the road. He's unconscious. And Yapel actually tries to tell everybody, listen, he's dead. Leave him. Just basically get back. He's dead. But no, they decide instead they're going to grab the rope and they drag him by the rope around his neck about 25 to 30 yards along the road. And the road would have been dirt and rocks back then. It wasn't paved it wasn't cobblestone um they drag him in front of the methodist church where they proceed to beat him viciously kick him and punch him um and that's where a very controversial figure a law student named raymond carr decides to get involved and maybe it's time for a second break before we oh, talk about him
0: the master of the cliffhanger mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I know that's pretty good right <laughs> <laughs> we,
0: we will be right back
1: hudsonriverradio.com
2: Your dad likes us.
1: Hi, I'm Karen Noe. I'm a psychic medium and spiritual author. Join me for the Angel Quest show here on HudsonRiverRadio.com. We'll discuss spiritual topics such as near-death experiences, reincarnation, life after death, how your thoughts create your reality, creating peace on earth, and so much more. Join me for the Angel Quest show. Many blessings to you.
2: Subscribe to the Angel Quest show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Lucky Land Casino asking
1: people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
0: Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Haha, uh-huh, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void reprohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Hey, Yvonne, do you know what Tony the Rooster is telling you? Hey, Allison, of course I do. That's right. Tony wants you to join us for Getting Dirty on HudsonRiverRadio.com. You'll learn all about gardening, local farming and farmers, and why it's cool to get dirty. Join us because it's awesomely awesome.
2: Subscribe to Getting Dirty on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is HudsonRiverRadio.com.
0: We're tr- we're trying to decide who's bringing
2: who back. We're um, pointing at each other on Zoom. Yes. so you do
0: it. <laughs> no, you do it. Um, Brian, any questions at this point?
2: I'm just in suspense. I want to see where this is going, and then I will probably have many follow-ups.
0: Excellent. But I also All right. don't want
2: to give away too much in Mike's book because I haven't read it yet either. So no.
1: Nope. So oh, don't worry. If I'm not, if I can't answer, I'll plead the fifth. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs>
0: All right, you left us in suspense. take it away
1: so Raymond Carr he's a a young law student. His father is an extremely prominent lawyer in Port Jervis with an extremely impressive background. Um, he gets involved in the mob and of course his role becomes extremely controversial to this day. Um, I have my opinions which i I share in the book what I think um i preserve i reserve that to the end so other people can formulate their own opinions, but he gets involved and in front of where he lived, it's next to the Methodist church. It's just a particularly violent section of—I call it the march to the tree—where um, they just subject him to just vicious beatings and kickings. Um, he's half naked by this time; his clothes are being torn off his body. He's bleeding, and from here, the crowd really—there's a threat to hang him again—but they they keep going because they're still sort of focused on let's get him identified. Well, so they get down to Main Street and they start heading down Main Street. They pass the residence of a very well-known, another lawyer, um, Judge William H. Crane. Now, his last name should be very familiar because his brother was Stephen Crane, uh, the author of The Red Badge of Courage. And Stephen Crane had spent many summers in Port Jervis, um, actually sitting beneath the monument, the Soldiers and Sailors Monument in Orange Square, listening to the veterans of the Orange Blossoms talk about the Civil War. So, you know, Judge Crane, wow. his his father had been a, a minister at the church. He was very well known, extremely well respected. So he's in his house taking a bath when basically someone in his house, his servant says, hey, you know, I think they're going to hang someone on the tree outside, which makes him kind of hastily throw some clothes on and decide to intervene. And he's another hero, I think, of that night. So they pass by his house. And as a They get to the intersection. The next intersection It's Elizabeth Street. Someone decides to shout. And this is how easy it is to just inflame a crowd. They start shouting that Lena McMahon has died. She's dead. So the minute that shout starts going around, the mob no longer needs to have him identified. They don't need to verify she's dead. They drag him across the street. And right across the street from there, they drag them across. It's called Herring's Crosswalk at the time because the Herring's lived on the corner and the crosswalk was in front of their house. Everything was referenced by people back then. And right opposite that crosswalk was a huge maple tree in front of the residence of a guy named Irwin Fowler. He was a publisher of the rural New Yorker. He had a summer home. They throw the rope over a limb. And as William Crane is approaching the mob, all he sees is Robert Lewis's body shooting into the air at the end of a rope, um, his legs are pulling up, his elbows are crooking. He had to have been in extreme pain at that moment because we're not talking a hangman's noose. We're not talking any drop. I know we've, we've talked about this on this show before. We did a whole thing on the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, this was not a pre- precise judicial hanging. This was a sudden suspension. He went from being on the ground to his entire body weight just being pulled up by that neck. Um, I can't imagine the, the terror and I know, Linda, you read the chapter about that with the forensic analysis, which I won't spoil. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, Mike did his, uh, again, doctoral dissertation on uh, the finer <laughs> points and the blow-by-blow blow of what happens during such uh, such a violent hanging.
1: Yes, um, and to me that was important because it really does show what exactly would or could have been happening as best Hmm. as as I can reconstruct with this amount of time. But judge crane pushes through this mob and he sees the rope is descending into a crowd and he starts pulling on it and he starts yelling to let it go. And he's pulling and people are resisting him, but his authority had some, some sway because he eventually is able to pull it and they let go. And of course, Robert Lewis drops from this however high he was hanging Onto the ground, it actually drops into the gutter. So it was close to the road. So it was the sidewalk, the tree, and then the gutter where the road was. And Crane takes a stand right over his body. He stands over Robert Lewis, basically defying anybody in the crowd to to dare touch him. By this time, Yeaple is able to kind of get up close and next to next to Crane, and Yeaple has pulled his pistol out. And there's a brief standoff now with this mob surrounding. Robert Lewis they're surrounding the tree and here you have a judge and Simon Yaple holding off this mob and Yaple basically threatens to shoot anybody that touches them. and people in the mob are threatening to shoot Yaple. Well if you if Yapel shoots I'll shoot. Um, you know in 1892 he probably had a uh, five shot revolver, maybe six. I'm not even sure it would have been maybe a 32 caliber 25. I'm not even sure. So really if he had shot, Um, if they'd shot back, it probably would have been an ugly scene, but there is this very moment where it seems the mob has taken a pause. Robert Lewis could live a doctor works his way up named Walter Ilmon. And the judge says, you know, will this man live now? Meanwhile, Robert Lewis is on the ground gasping and convulsing his body's having convulsions at this point. And the doctor says, yes, I think. I think he'll live if we can get him away from here into the hospital. Now, I don't know if he would have lived. I think the shock at that point on his body from the beating probably would have been ultimately fatal, but.
0: And they the, could have crushed his windpipe by now. Right. Yeah. Who
1: knows what the level of, of Trauma, physical injury, yeah. Um, you know, he's bleeding. He's almost naked at this point. And, but the doctor says, yeah, if we can get him away from here. So there, that's the plan at this moment. We're going to, we're going to get him away from here. The mob is sort of. They're angry, but they've sort of stopped for a moment. They haven't, you know, the the swarm is sort of surrounding the hive, but they're not stinging anybody. And I really think at that moment is when Robert Lewis could have lived. And Judge Crane later will say a word either way could make a difference. And that word either way is alleged to have come from Raymond Carr. Because people in the crowd were saying, is it Bob Lewis? Is it Lewis? You know, and they were bending down. People are kind of flicking matches by his face to see because it's dark. It's you know by now it's like 9 30 at night. Well Raymond Carr is alleged to have uttered some inflammatory words like yes it's him and he ought to be hung. At which point the crowd takes up their roar um crane is pushed aside in yaple people dive in with the rope and they start because he had taken the rope off of his neck they dive in to put the rope around his neck crane grabs it they pull it off and it's just another shoving match where eventually yapel and crane are just completely pushed aside and the crowd surrounds the tree like a dense mob and they watch him get hanged the second time and this time he can't even get through enough to get to the rope all he sees is the rope disappearing into the mob and hands coming up out of there i always picture this this image of just hands coming up out of this crowd to all be touching the rope everybody wanted to have their hand on the rope i'm sure that was close Um, and of course, you know, I'm sure that absolved them of their responsibility. Well, I just had a hold of it. I really wasn't pulling. So it's that I'm not really guilty. You know, maybe he was pulling it or that guy, but I just kind of was touching it. So by this time, judge crane realizes he's dead. Um, and he leaves, he's disgusted. Um, and eventually the crowd starts to disperse. They leave the body hanging because at this point now they have a crime. And the coroner hasn't been available. So eventually the judge hell shows up and orders him cut down. And then he's taken by orders of the coroner to a undertaker. And, you know, that's where Bob Lewis ends up on the night of June 2nd in the undertaking rooms on front street above a furniture shop, Carly and Twilliger furniture and undertakers (laughs) one stop shopping. (laughs) Wow. Even back then you needed a second job.
2: (laughs) And
1: so, you know, the next, you know, Port Jervis goes to sleep the night of June 2nd in relative obscurity, other than being a sort of quasi-metropolitan stop on the Erie Railroad, a hub, and the next day wake up to national headlines for this uh, horrendous lynching. Um, the next day, the the mobs outside the funeral home, people are lining up to see his body. They cut his hair off his body, his clothes. Um, they hack the tree. They hack up the rope
0: souvenirs so, it's amazing yeah. how they want we've seen that in how many cases they want souvenirs of the the grisly crime scene
1: and yeah, body um it got to the point where the funeral the undertakers had to have the police keep people out because they, they were there would be nothing left of his body um, one of my frustrations with all this research has been that there was a post-mortem photo taken of him in the funeral home before his body was cleaned up and dressed which would have shown his injuries. But I was never able to track down that photo. Mm. And I know who had it in December of 1892. And he left a lot of stuff to the Historical Society. And I dug through boxes of stuff that probably no one's touched <laughs> in a hundred years to find it. And I'll keep looking, you know, me, Linda. I'll just oh, you are it. never going to rest. But um, but he took the photo and, or had the photo taken to show what the damage was when he went to ask the legislature for more money to reimburse for his burial. So, you know, Port Jervis enters national headlines. And of course, we're the North. This doesn't happen here. And when it does, we're going to show you how better we are than the South because we're going to hold people accountable. And so they're going to impanel a coroner's jury. We're going to name names. And, you know, long story short, this isn't really giving away much. The coroner's jury fails at holding anybody accountable. And there's so many problems with the corners inquest. First of all, I was never able to locate any transcripts, although I'm sure one was created. So I had to make my own. <laughs> so that took, um, the newspapers fortunately covered the inquest in great detail, the testimony. So I took, I forget how many total sources, but basically would take each source, break down, okay, what did Simon Yaple say in this source? Okay, what did he say in this source? What did he say in this source? What do you say in this source? And then from that, reconstruct what he would have testified to. Not word for word necessarily, but what he would have testified to. And I did that for every witness. Um, And one of the biggest problems was it was open to the public. So Simon Yaple is accusing somebody of maybe inflaming the crowd who's sitting there. And then the next day comes in and, and says, oh, I want to testify. I wasn't doing that. Raymond Carr being one of them. So for are him in cars listening to all this damning testimony. And then it's able to come in and sort of be like, no, that's not how it happened when the coroner really could have probably convened a more private inquest. It's a quasi judicial really was up to the coroner. You know, it wasn't like the laws of a, a jury trial necessarily. So it was a farce from the beginning, unfortunately. And, you know, Port Jervis, they, I think they circled the wagons to some extent. Um, a grand jury is convened as linda knows the grand jury was one of our early discoveries over at the county building (laughs) with the dusty old box (laughs) (laughs) um and she snapped a really cool picture of me holding a document which i won't reveal today but i was like well you remember it was like one of the first things we pulled out but right right and um but that's just that level of discovery when you find something but ultimately the first grand jury indicts a few men for assault and riot they convene a second grand jury in September, no more indictments and no one's ever actually brought to trial. So really by the end of 1892, it's almost forgotten.
0: Yeah. This is so infuriating. They knew who these people were. They were identified by multiple credible witnesses, the judges, the, the, the law enforcement. They knew who these were and circling the wagons, I think is an understatement and everybody covered for everybody else, and just flat out lied. They just absolutely, oh no, not me, he's mistaken. It's, this is the crime after the crime after the crime. Um, This is such a disgrace for as a civilized, uh, you know, civilized time and place. Uh, I always say the veneer of civilization is very thin and they did a horrific thing and, and nobody was
1: going to pay for it. No. And, and I touch upon this a lot. Um, I think, well, the newspapers of the time really reveal this sentiment because, you know, in one breath they'll condemn the lynching. This is horrible. We're civilized. People are entitled to a trial. People are entitled, you know, but then in the next breath, but this is a big, but you know, the penalties for rape aren't really that severe. So we kind of understand and he probably did it anyway. So it's, you know, there's in one breath they're condemning it, but then they next breath it's, well, but he kind of got what he deserved. And that's a very common theme. And I think one of the, probably one of the things that kept people from naming names was, well, if if somebody is held accountable for this, it's murder, And that could be, depending on the level, it could have been a death penalty offense in New York. Well, why should that person die for killing a man who raped her anyway? I mean, yeah, they shouldn't have done it, but is it really fair that he should die? You know, I just think that was a lot of it. Like, we're just going to make this go away, and that's really what happens. And it doesn't take long to forget these things. Um, I remember I saw an article about genealogy once where the number of people who couldn't even identify their great grandparents, let alone a generation past that. So how long does it take before people with firsthand knowledge are all dead and no one around to really remember what happened other than word of mouth? Yeah,
2: well, and if it's purposely pushed aside and people purposely never talk about it and never bring it up, and you're not sharing photographs like you said, like we are now, nowadays you take a photograph you're never going to be able to get rid of it back then. You, right. You can't even
1: find it. Yeah. And, and people knew because Simon Yaple ends up becoming chief later that year. Uh, the chief resigns for whatever reason. Yapel's made chief and he's really praised as a hero. He names names. He's not afraid. Um, the following March during the elections, the board that was in is no longer, I think it was a Republican board got replaced by a democratic board and Yaple's out as chief. And actually the one newspaper lamented and said that the lynchers are now back in charge of politics. So they knew who was, who really were the people that were involved in this locally. One of the men was a man named John Kinsella, who was identified by Yaple as having a role in inflaming the crowd. And Kinsella was a very well-known engineer on the Erie railroad. Like he was revered. He was not only a democratic party politician, he actually went on to become a county legislature in 1893 or four. But he was like legendary because he had survived so many railroad accidents. Like, I don't know. I don't know if I sent you the picture, Linda. I didn't have room in the book. I have 170 illustrations to begin with. And <laughs> that was cutting wow. out from the probably 500 it could have been. Wow. But in 18 like 88 or I don't remember the year, he had been involved in a head-on collision in Shahola, Pennsylvania, where the engine was like thrown over the bank. He was badly scolded, but he managed to like crawl up out of the wreck and survive and gain like this almost celebrity status. Like, you know, this is John Kinsella. He's a master engineer. And yet here he is being accused of this horrible crime. But again, he was able to testify in his own behalf because he sat there and listened to everybody saying what he did. Wow. So just a lot of prominent names get thrown around as having been involved. And ultimately, no one's held accountable. PJ Foley is indicted for blackmail against Lena, but he's never brought to trial and he just sort of disappears.
0: Yeah. I I think we should, we should uh, uh, clarify, you know, what you're saying about at the inquest and everything, these weren't closed doors. So people are sitting there. You just were saying, listening to what everybody was testifying to. So you knew how to respond. You didn't come in there like not knowing what did everybody say. You knew exactly what everybody said, so you knew exactly how to form your story. And that's, yes. that's like unheard of, right?
1: And, and the coroner, you know, there was no right to cross-examine witnesses. So the coroner had the right to conduct this hearing. Um, no one had to cross-examine. No one, there was no right to call witnesses other than the coroner. The coroner decided who to call. He could have said, no, I'm not allowing you to testify. But instead, people sat there, like you said, and could hear the accusations made. And then say, Well, I want to I want to testify on my behalf. So the point where this the corner and the course the jury is all local people. So now you're selecting local people from the community to be on the jury randomly selected. Um, and how willing are they willing to hold people accountable? These are people that own businesses lived in town. You just don't know and it's unfortunate because maybe had it been closed door maybe they would have been a little more inclined or less less likely to have this conflicting testimony mm. testimony being thrown out
0: yeah so as you were saying uh foley kind of drops off the record and yes. never is held accountable for anything
1: no he's indicted for blackmail he gets bailed. he ends up getting bailed out at the end of 1892 Fails to show up to court in 1893, jumps bail, um, shows up in the summer of 1893, sort of cleared up all of his legal problems, no trial, no punishment, um, and then disappears. And he's just gone. And like I said, I, he was one of my frustrations. I have some good candidates based upon the information. Could have been him. I talk about them, but, you know, it assumes that everything that's known about him is even remotely true. Yeah. Which it could be and it, it may not be.
0: Yeah. And then he's the uh, scoundrel. Yes, he is the scoundrel. And then poor Lena um never really recovers from this.
1: No, Lena's very sad. And um well, you know how it is when you write about people, Linda. It's you develop a very intimate bond with them. And even if you're separated by hundred of year hundred years, mm-hmm. and that was sort of how I felt about Lena and her, you know, I was able to track her to nineteen ten for a long time that's where it stopped 1910 and i you know it was frustrating and i had so many leads um she used different names because she had been adopted so what name was she using and um i remember when i actually was able to to piece it together i remember it was early march of um 2021 last year i remember putting it together and finally realizing oh my god this is her this is when she died and how she died I remember telling telling what Renee that day. I'm like, you know, I, I found out Lena McMahon's she's dead. And she's like, well, yeah, wouldn't she be like 150 years old? <laughs> but, and, and you know what? And, but at that moment, it wasn't that I didn't think she was really dead, but she hadn't been dead to me yet. Because there was still that, she's still alive yeah. here in 1910. Where is she now? Yeah, once I, have that,
0: a, I have a brief start. Let me just grab something.
1: Oh, yes, please.
0: <laughs> this is a picture of Albion Brooks. I keep on my desk. When I was writing uh, Forging a Nation, I was going through all sorts of Civil War soldiers, diaries, letters. I got to know Albion. Everybody loved Albion Brooks. And have you seen Albion? We love it. Al- oh, Albion's coming by. And I pick up a letter from Cold Harbor, Virginia, um, and it's uh, I am I'm, I'm covered in goosebumps. I regret to inform you, your dear friend Albion Brooks was shot in an engagement of Cold Harbor and passed away last night. And I get I see you can hear it in my voice because I knew and loved this man.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it took me
0: years. I finally tracked down his photo. And to me, Albion Brooks had just died. Yes. It, it's the same thing. And and that's That's why we get along so well on these projects because we become emotionally and personally involved in the characters, love them or hate them. You, you feel, you walk in their footsteps, you're in their heads for so long. And I think you have really brought this out in, in this book.
1: Thank you. It's, I, I do understand that feeling because they, they do take on, they become alive again. They really Mm -hmm. do. They live again um, whether it's with the information we uncover the way we, we think of them and write about them. You know, I probably know more about Lena McMahon's life than anybody else knew since she died <laughs> more than probably, you know, I, I don't think there was anybody else in her family. Um, as you know, in the in last summer I went to Gettysburg and I, her father had been wounded at the Emmitsburg road. Um, he was hit with a shell fragment while fighting there. And I went to where the, their monument is to his regiment. I thought, you know, wow this this is where he fought and they actually had the markers where the line started and ended for the regiment mm-hmm. so it's like he was right here roughly between that spot and that spot somewhere in here like he was standing here at the battle of gettysburg and wounded uh, and those wounds dogged on the rest of his life you know and that's what's great about those pension files i mean you get lost in the yeah so much more than just the stories and you could well you know it's a rabbit hole of rabbit hole you know pretty soon you're at the center of the earth you're like going down so many different rabbit holes you're like where am i but um but that to me is what telling the story really is anybody can take the newspaper articles and say oh you know they hanged up from a tree but i wanted to say well what exactly happened to him from the jail to the tree in detail not just okay they did this It's no. The way I break it down, is you can see in detail, what happened to him and where, what happened, you know, that to me is important. The lynching itself at the end is horrible. The process getting in there is even worse. So that's the one thing I really wanted to convey and, and the level of detail. I'm a stickler mm-hmm. for detail. Documenting no, documenting. Yes.
0: <laughs> um,
1: to put it in perspective, um, the, I used the total of it, I counted them up and I was shocked—six hundred and thirty-five different sources to tell the whole story. Wow. Now that doesn't mean they're all directly lynching-related, but they're involved in somehow filling in the blanks of the whole story. Um, I was actually shocked. I was—it's a four hundred forty-four-page book, and I remember um, when I was talking to one one of the people at the historical society, like, how big? How many pages? Like, I'd probably get like maybe 200. Oh, I remember. Tops. I'm
0: hoping to yeah, get heard,
1: 200. I that. I'm thinking maybe 200. And at the end, like 444 pages.
2: <laughs> and that's after cutting out like the illustrations that you, you, you know, you well, have yeah, and, and make a choice. What and one of those, what to leave out.
1: Yeah. And one of the things uh, I thought initially was well, you know what I could do is at the end, I could put like a little appendix of illustrations which are good to have help tell this story, but don't really fit into the text. I'm like, yeah, 444 pages. (laughs) So um, it's a very big book, 178 pictures and illustrations, including, you know, maps, actual court documents, which have never before been published or seen outside of probably 1892. And even then they were never published. They were reported on, but I actually held those documents my hands and Linda held them in her hands and shared in that moment of discovery. And excellent. All right. So where can everybody get the book? So right now it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or any other fine bookseller online. (laughs) Um, if you're local to Port Jervis, there will be some book signings and availability, but nothing that I can concretely plan yet. Okay. So you can get it online.
2: Okay. Lynch by a mob. It's called, um, Lynch are, are you bringing books to the pine bush ufo fair if people uh, happen to be i'm able. not sure yet but if i do okay. make it down there i will definitely okay. cool definitely all right
0: okay and the website where people are facebook page where can people find out more information and where you will be holding lectures and and uh, book signing events
1: so you can find me on facebook it's michael J. warden author to search for me that way. I should pop up. You'll see my lovely face on the profile picture. Um, you can also go to my website, michaeljwarden.com. I'm in the process of updating that. So hopefully we'll have much more information on that. But it, if you do go to my Facebook page, the Michael J. Warden author, I will have that updated much more frequently.
0: And if, P- you know, you, you do give fabulous lectures as people have just heard you, as I said, weave this story. So <laughs> if they want you to give a presentation you are up for that. absolutely they want to contact you.
1: Yes, I like to talk, so anybody who wants me to talk. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so much you could talk about with this case, it, it's almost hard sometimes to to boil it down into a 45 50 minutes without one giving away too much. <laughs> you know, or um and I really just want to convey that that it's um I know you said it's like doctoral level but it's it was really a passion and it, an obsession to some extent, a passion. I know you share that when you're writing and researching. And um, I actually felt the first few nights after I finished, I felt like I was being lazy and not doing anything like uh, <laughs> I should be doing something. stress. And don't yeah. like in
2: front of me <laughs> like right when you're retired right that first couple of days you're probably like yeah, yeah. What do oh I do? yeah because yeah. you are
0: so you are 24 hours a day if you're not working on it you're thinking about working on it and then it's over and you're like well, what do i do now i i don't know how to relax
1: yeah. <laughs> I, I i would wake up in the middle of the night sometimes in an idea and i'd have to text it to myself so i'd be like you know quickly texting my own self and then i wouldn't answer the text so in the morning i'd be like oh wh- oh yeah I mean, if you look behind me on my, my one desk here, I still have to put things away. It's an absolute nice. mess, but nice, but worth it. You know, it's just a level. Yeah. yeah. Well, well,
0: congratulations. You thank did, you. You did yeah, a phenomenal job. I can't and... wait to
2: read it. I get a signed yeah. copy, right? Yes. Okay. Signature is
1: no extra charge. <laughs> no extra charge. All right. And
0: this is just, it's an important resource for history. Uh, yes. Particularly now, it's very timely. And just moving forward, people need to know what what people are capable of, the yes. good, the evil, how how sides instantly crystallize, and you're on the good side or you're not. Yes. And, and I, hopefully people pay for not being on the good side, but how right. many times we see nothing happens.
1: And, and I do want to stress, and I, and I do talk about this in the book, Um, you know, Robert Lewis enjoys the presumption of innocence based upon our legal system. So whether or not he committed the underlying offense is a separate issue than whether or not he was innocent in the eyes of the law. So in the eyes of the law, Robert Lewis was an innocent man. An innocent man was lynched. Now that doesn't mean he was free of guilt from the crime, but he was never charged. Right. Right. He, he was robbed of his due process completely. So that does make him an innocent man. And I think that's an unfortunate part. I really believe had he lived, he would have testified against PJ Foley and been given a deal. And PJ Foley probably would have went away for a lot longer than Robert Lewis. Mm -hmm. And as we know, from my my first book, Linda, that's happened with Jack Hodges, Mm -hmm. and the the murder for hire. So Orange County had a precedent of an African American testifying against and in that case, some prominent white men Mm -hmm. and putting them in prison or hanging them. So Wow. I'm pretty confident that would've happened had he lived. But they killed the only witness against PJ Foley. Right. Wow. <laughs> you know, and you can't you can't arrest somebody and convict them on hearsay of well, he told us he did it. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately P J Foley got away with it and hopefully he paid some other way karma. But Hope
2: so. All right. We have to wrap it up. We, we ran. Yes, I'm sorry. So, no, it was totally, I can't wait to read Keep talking. it. So, yeah. It was
0: so good to have you back, Mike. Hopefully uh, for some of the older close yes. cases, we can uh, benefit with sometimes. your <laughs> legal wisdom. Um, but again, congratulations. Thank you. Um, I hope everybody buys the book and enjoys it and leaves good comments because that's how people know to know yes, buy please. it. And yes. um, we will always be happy to plug if you have an event coming up, you know, and, and Brian and I are doing one of the shows, we'll certainly me- mention it. So, yeah, absolutely. Yep. All right. So we will let you bring us out in your own inimitable style.
1: Well, thank you for joining us here on Murder in the Hudson Valley. And we look forward to having you join us again if you are not the victim of murder in the Hudson Valley. This is HudsonRiverRadio.com.